This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. From the Podglomerate, you're listening to The Feast. I'm Dr. Laura Carlson, and I explore the history of food. From empires of sugar to lunch counter revolutions. Whether it's mom's home cooking or opulent hundred-course dinners, food has fueled politics, technology, religion, and more. History is full of food. And on each episode of The Feast, we're bringing you the meals that made it. Let's start today with an old story. A really old story. The version I'm telling you today is probably around 2,500 years old, but in all reality, it's actually probably hundreds if not thousands of years older. It tells of a time before history began, back when humans and gods were new in the world. And the gods, you know, Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, the lot of them, were having quite a bit of fun tormenting us mortals who lived down on Earth. Only one of them, Prometheus, who wasn't truly a god, but let's not get bogged down in the details, felt sorry for the poor mortals who were kind of having a rough go of it down on Earth. See, fire at the time was only something the gods could use. And Prometheus decided to steal an ember of the divine fire and give it to humans. Hiding it in a fennel stalk, because why wouldn't you hide fire in a fennel stalk, he gifted it to humans, showing them how to use fire to warm themselves, and, in particular, cook with. Now, in one version of the story, it wasn't long before Zeus, king of the gods, who hadn't really been paying attention while all this fire-stealing was going on, started to smell something delicious. It wasn't coming from Olympus, but surprisingly, at least for him, it was coming from down on Earth. He was enraged to find humans using fire to cook with, with the aromas from their new roasted meats trickling their way up to the heavens. Zeus was enraged, punishing Prometheus in a particularly nasty way by chaining him to a rock and sending an eagle to peck out his liver. Being immortal, of course, Prometheus didn't die once this happened, so each day his liver would grow back, at which point the eagle would return to peck it out once more. Ouch. But the deed was done. Humans had the power of fire, and things would never be the same. And according to the story, written down by Hesiod, this was the moment everything changed. When humans began to build and grow and flourish, the literal birth, at least for the ancient Greeks, of civilization. This connection between cooking and the origins of human society is not one we find just in ancient Greece. All over the world, throughout mythologies, histories, even archaeology, the intersection among gods, humans, and food Specifically, cooked food is a pivotal one. 
framing the moment that we went from forging raw fruits and nuts to grilled meats or baked bread or even brewed beer. It's pivotal, the moment we become truly human. Even among evolutionary biologists, the relationship between the invention of cooking and humans becoming, well, humans, is an increasingly popular field of study. In 2009, the primatologist Richard Rangham published the book Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human, where he investigates this very question. Was it the use of fire, specifically the use of fire to cook food, that separated us fundamentally from our hominid ancestors? It's a theory that, at its heart, isn't too far from Hesiod and the ancient Greeks. But this chain, at least for Hesiod, that linked God to humans through food, isn't just a one-way street. Hesiod's story doesn't end, of course, with fire and the birth of human civilization. Don't forget, Zeus only noticed Prometheus's theft when he smelled that delicious aroma of roasting meat. Gods get hungry too, apparently. And whether as a gift from the gods or a gift to the gods, Food often is inherently religious, even divine, amongst worldwide cultures. And depending on the kind of god we're talking about, even they can have particularly fussy dietary habits. Today, we're bringing you a smorgasbord of divine food stories, inspired by our recent conversation with Emmeline Rood, editor of Eaton, the brand new food history magazine. Eaton's first issue, available now, is dedicated entirely to spiritual savories found all over the world and throughout time. We got the inside scoop from Emmeline about some of the fascinating articles and even recipes you can find in the magazine, from late 19th century scenes of Jewish Passover traditions to appeasing the gods of the Roman Empire with honey cake. And in between these teasers of Eaton's first issue, we'll be offering up some of our own discoveries of divine foods. But let's kick off with Eaton itself and its editor-in-chief, Emmeline Rood. Okay, uh, my name is Emmeline. In a serious way, I'm a, I'm a historian, but if, if we want to get real, I'm the world's premier chicken historian. I wrote a book called Taste Like Chicken. It's the history of eating chicken in America. Uh, besides tastes like chicken. I write like little food history things for outlets, just media outlets online. And I've noticed it was it was kind of hard to get them placed, if that makes sense. Like a lot of the glossies, they either do kind of very superficial history. And I don't mean to bash them, but the journalism and history are two totally different skills. Um, and I've noticed a lot of the, the glossy food journals of the world are not, not the best at the history. But then when I wanted to read food history, you'd only get the really, really academic journals, which are, even as somebody who is very academic, I, my eyes glaze over sometimes as well. So I thought something in between would be perfect, at least for somebody like me. And so I started emailing people. And that's, that's why I decided to do a Kickstarter, because it was kind of like a a no risk way to see if uh, if other people were interested in the weird things that I'm interested in and it turns out everyone is a secret food historian I think present company included 
as I'm sure are most of the Feast audience. The number of people who've come out of the woodworks just, just so excited about this and have so many ideas, uh, it's, it's kind of incredible. I did not anticipate it when I set out. So after a very successful Kickstarter launch, Eaton's first issue, Food of the Gods, has just been released. We asked Emmeline to give us a few clues about what folks might find in this divinely inspired issue. Like I knew I wanted to get Elaine Krasova, who wrote Butter, A Rich History. She is the world's premier butter historian. I knew somebody had mentioned that one of her chapters, I had, hadn't read the book at that point, was about Tibetan butter carving. And I thought, that is perfect, because it's a, it's a big uh, ritual in Tibet and northern India that they carve these intricate butter forms for the gods, which I thought was, obviously, we have to include that. Now, butter. Talk about a divine food with a rich global history. In India, for example, butter has some serious divine associations, given the cow's status as a sacred animal in Hinduism. But butter's divine origins and links to humanity's origins go far deeper. Prajapati, the god of creation in Hinduism, was said to have literally created his children from ghee, or clarified butter, by molding them into shape. But butter's divinity, and to an extent its mystery, is a much more global phenomenon. Like many of the happy accidents in the kitchen over the thousands of years of human civilization, the exact process of how and why milk can transform into the solid state of rich, creamy butter was often unknown. You can imagine the delight, and maybe the confusion, of a traveler who, having packed his container full of milk before a long journey on horseback, at the end of a long and bumpy road, opened that container to find instead of the liquid he had packed, a strange yellowish solid instead. And even after humans figured out that a combination of time and work could produce this same strange solid from milk, it remained a difficult skill to perfect. The labor required to make butter, let alone good butter, made it a desirable and usually luxurious product in civilizations from ancient Egypt to medieval Europe. In Egypt, for example, a favorite bathing ritual including putting a lump of perfumed butter on top of your head, letting it melt to drip over your face and body, perfuming and oiling you all the way down. Meanwhile, over in medieval Europe, butter was considered a food product so delightful, it was prohibited during Lent, the 40 days of fasting before Easter. But in the heydays of paying off your local clergyman, medieval folks in the know could chip in a few coins to their church in exchange for dispensation for eating butter during those fasting days. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how the famous butter tower of Rouen Cathedral got built in the 15th and 16th centuries. Still around today. Yes, an entire flamboyantly gothic tower, all built on the funds of people who just wanted a bit of butter during Lent. But the full decadent tale of the Rouen Butter Tower is a story for another day. Let's get back to Eaton and the other articles included in their very first issue. And then for my chicken work, I knew that um, Adrian Miller, who wrote the book Soul Food, who knows all about 
soul food and African-American food waste. He wrote a really great chapter on the gospel bird and kind of the connection between African-Americans, religion and fried chicken, which obviously that also have to include that. You might remember Adrian Miller from an earlier episode this season on The Feast, talking about the history of African-American chefs in the White House. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, it's still up on our website and on all good podcast apps. Bonus content on the national crisis LBJ caused when he revealed that, as a good Texan, he didn't put beans in his chili. Seriously, it caused a national crisis. Anyway, back to the gospel bird. Ah, the chicken. A bird with a seriously long history, not only in the United States, but all over the world. Although Americans may know the phrase, a chicken in every pot, as a tie-over from an old Republican Party promise back during the elections of 1928, the tactic of promising poultry was nothing new, even in the 1920s. If we head again to medieval France, home of that infamous butter tower, we find another callback to fowl as food, with King Henry IV promising the very same thing to the medieval French populace as the Republicans did in 1928. Quote, I hope to make France so prosperous that every peasant will have a chicken in his pot on Sundays. So really, nothing ever changes, at least in politics. Unlike butter, however, chickens don't seem to have nearly as long a divine history no matter where we look. Perhaps it's due to the fact that chickens were one of the last animals to be domesticated, long after the cow, goat, or sheep. But that doesn't mean that the chicken, or its related, fowly brethren, didn't acquire some divine associations of its own over the years. In areas like the Pacific Islands, Tibet, and Mongolia, the chicken was long thought to be a prophetic animal. The use of chicken bones, chicken blood, or even chicken entrails frequently were used as a means of fortune-telling. But there is one aspect of the chicken, or really poultry in general, that has been considered divine on almost a global scale. Eggs. Often considered a symbol of pure fertility and divine power, eggs have often held a unique status in the cuisines of cultures worldwide, often as a restricted food available only to select groups. In Zoroastrianism, the chicken was considered a divine animal, associated with fire and light, a tie-in to the rooster's associations with the dawn. It was said that the crow of a rooster could literally scare away evil. And in ancient Greece and Rome, roosters were common sacrifices at the temple of Asclepius, the god of medicine. On the other end of things, eggs were also popular at temples to Venus, where the eggs' associations with fertility made them natural symbols of the goddess. And many gods throughout the world started out in eggs. In ancient Egypt, the powerful sun god Amun-Re emerged from a giant egg. And in the Vedic tradition, the god Brahma also emerged from a large golden egg. In China, eggs have been common sites at weddings for generations, a hopeful symbol of children. And in numerous cultures, women who hoped to become pregnant often had a special relationship with eggs. In some cultures, it was eat all the eggs you can— whereas in others, women consciously avoided them. It all came down to whether you believed the eggs' associations with fertility could help 
or hurt your own chances to conceive. But eggs have been just one of the many foods to act as gifts or sacrifices to the gods over the years. Now, sacrificing to gods can be a tricky problem. On one hand, you want to keep the god on your side. But on the other, well, food has often been a scarce resource throughout human history. You have to really like your particular god in order to sacrifice food to him or her when you yourself were at risk of going hungry. But as many stories will tell us, gods can often be tricked or at least convinced not to take the best food for themselves. If we head back to that story of Prometheus from ancient Greece for a moment, his story actually doesn't end with the theft of fire. In some versions, Prometheus was also responsible for showing humans how to trick Zeus and the other gods into taking the worst bits of meat as a sacrifice. In Hesiod's version, Prometheus offered Zeus the choice of one of two piles of sacrificial meat. Now in one pile, Prometheus had sewed all the best cuts of meat into the stomach of a roasted ox. And in the other, he hid the bones of the ox under layers and layers of gleaming fat. Asking Zeus which pile he preferred, the king of the gods immediately chose the fatty pile deceived into thinking that it would also contain all the delicious meat. But when he scooped up the pile and found the bones hiding inside, he howled in fury. But the choice had been made. From then on, humans would no longer have to save the best of their meat for divine sacrifices. They could instead offer just bones and fat to the Greek gods, saving the meat for their own tables. And this story of tricking the gods? Well, it's not unique to Greece, as another article in Eaton will illustrate. This wonderful journalist named Eileen Guo, she's read, she wrote an article entitled um, The Contested Origins of the Barbarian Head. I don't know if you know of, of uh, Mantu. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Manto, Mantu. Basically, the Chinese steam bread. So it's really big in China, but uh, it's, we're, it's nomenclature in Chinese characters is really odd. It doesn't fat, uh, match any other sort of Chinese naming habits. Normally, it's either named after its physical ingredients or something really poetic to stimulate the appetite. But mantu is not like that. And the other thing that's interesting about mantu is that it has, you can find it literally everywhere now. There's manti in Turkey. There's mantu in Kazakhstan. There's um, manju in Japan. There's mandu in Korea. So basically how how this dumpling went around the world and why is it called the barbarian head um, is the story of that. So the barbarian head is the nickname. So the origin story of this dumpling, I knew I forgot the relevance to the gods, um, is that it's a famous general back in the day um, was crossing a river. And in order to do that, normally they gave offerings to the river gods and the offerings were decapitated heads but he didn't want to kill people. So he ordered his soldiers instead to create these buns that look kind of like heads and they appeased the river gods, let them pass. And now they're called barbarian head dumplings now today in China. The Tibetan Momo, there's the Uyghur, they have a, a, a version of this as well. Yeah, so basically it's spread throughout the Silk Road and it evolved and this becomes sort of a the national dish of basically all of Central Asia. 
So whether you're eating Momo, Mantu, or any other variation of this iconic and wide-ranging dumpling, in some sense, you're taking part of a thousand-year-old tradition of humans tricking deities through food, whether they be ancient Chinese river gods or Zeus himself. But the culinary relationship between gods and humans hasn't always been an antagonistic one. For thousands of years, humans have frequently offered up some of the most delicious or most coveted foods of their culture to the deities, often lovingly cooked and prepared. Take, for example, the ancient Roman honey cake, a recipe for which you can find in Eaton, complete with an article by Crystal King, who wrote the fantastic book Feast of Sorrow, a novel of ancient Rome, based on the work of the 4th century Roman gourmand, Apicius. And so she wrote about her process of just, A, how she went about and researched the book, and a lot of it involved going through old Roman recipes and recreating them. Um, And she came upon the honey cake because, surprise, surprise, the Romans would give them as offerings to their gods. And the recipes were essential for her novel, so she's figured why not include one for the magazine, and I, I think it's beautiful. Well, so what she did, so I don't know how many people listening are, are familiar with Roman recipes, but they're they're basically the most useless thing anyone has ever seen. They're like flour, salt, water. They have no proportions. They have no directions. And she writes about this, that she has had no idea what to do in the beginning. But thankfully, there's a lot of crazy people out there like us who, who have spent time to recreate ancient Roman recipes. So there's a lot of... Um, actually ancient Roman cookbooks with historians recreating all these dishes. And what she did is she went off both of the original recipe and what these historians had recreated and just fiddled around in her own kitchen until it, A, worked, which is important, and B, tasted good, which is equally important. Long after humans had tricked Zeus into taking the bones and fat on the sacrificial altar, by the time of Apicius, new trends in divine foods had popped up which, of course, humans also enjoyed on occasion. Throughout the few recipes that come down to us from the ancient world, honey, it seems, was a perennial ingredient, whether for the humans or for the gods, used as a sweetener in everything from wine to fish sauce to pastry. But honey has a much longer and much more divine history than just as a Roman pantry staple. Tonight. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Beekeeping is actually one of the earliest recorded human activities, featured in the rock paintings found in the spider caves of Alenthia, Spain, dating to around 8,000 BCE. But even if we fast forward to ancient Egypt, we find honey was often considered an essential product, 
no matter your social or economic class. Marriage contracts dating from the 4th century BC even include honey in a couple's vows. Quote, I take thee to wife and promise to deliver to thee yearly twelve jars of honey. Talk about a sweet dowry. Throughout Egypt, Greece, and Rome, honey was often used to feed animals sacred to gods. The great bull Apis at Memphis, the sacred goat at Mendes, and the holy lion at, well, Leontopolis, were all regularly fed with honey. We also might find some cases in which honey wasn't just given to the divine, but was actually considered divine. There are theories, for example, that ambrosia, the food of the gods in ancient Greek and Roman mythology, was a form of honey. Now, not everyone agrees on that interpretation. Others think that ambrosia was actually a form of hallucinogenic mushroom. But that's a story for another day. Anyway, Honey's associations or origins with the divine aren't limited to just the Greeks, Egyptians, and Romans. In the Abrahamic tradition, Canaan, the promised land, is of course referred to as the land of milk and honey. And honey was a frequent ingredient in religious rituals and offerings throughout the world. And at times, even the bee itself was considered a deity. In early Russia, Lithuania, and Poland, Archaeologists have uncovered evidence of the worship of a bee god, sometimes known as Babylos or Zosim. But for many peoples throughout northern and eastern Europe, it wasn't just the honey that was considered divine, but also the alcoholic beverage you could make from it. That is, mead. Take a look at any number of sagas or stories from early northern Europe, and you'll inevitably find mention of mead. The god Thor, for example, was known to have a particular thirst for it. In one saga, consuming over three tons, that is 720 gallons, of mead. Even after the growth of Christianity in medieval Europe, the bee remained a symbol of piety and devotion. A good monk or nun, of course, was always as busy as a bee. And many monasteries and churches kept beehives, using the wax for their candles, but also, of course, occasionally making a batch of tour mead, alongside the other favorite activity of medieval monks, brewing beer. Speaking of beer, of course, Eaton hasn't forgotten to include a nod to that thousand-year-old monastic tradition. Oh, I have this other, there's this other great photographer in France who just had happened to have taken a photo essay of these... uh, uh, beer brewing monks. And I just emailed him and, and we came to agreement. And so I published his photos as well. So from holy butter to barbarian head dumplings to monastic beer, there's something for every food history lover in Eaton. And the first issue is available now. Yes, you can go to www.eatonmagazine.com. E-A-T-E-N, like, have you eaten? And yeah, it has everything there. You can get your magazines. You can sign up for the newsletter. If you like, we have an Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, Eaton Mag, M-A-G. So you order it. I tell them to ship it to you eight days later. There you have it. (laughs) And that was our discussion with Eaton editor, Emmelyn Rood. As she mentioned, you can order the first issue now at www.eatonmagazine.com. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. 
with technical direction by Mike Port. A huge thank you to Emmeline Rood, who took the time to chat with us. We'll put a link up to the Eaton Magazine website, as well as Emmeline's own book, Tastes Like Chicken, on the history of eating chicken in the United States, on our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org. Many of our stories today about the history of butter, honey, eggs, and more came from the great works of Frederick J. Simoons, author of Plants of Life, Plants of Death, as well as the inimitable Margaret Vesser, whose many, many, many works include the fabulous Much Depends on Dinner, the extraordinary history and mythology, allure and obsessions, perils and taboos of an ordinary meal. We'll put up links to all these on the website, as well as to Hesiod's story of Prometheus, as well as Richard Rangham's Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. Music this week by Jazar, Ben Carey, Mastoom, musicians from Marlboro, and Andy Cohen. And now, for our own little holiday treat. As our gift to you, we're presenting our last episode of 2017 a week early. That is, next Friday, December 15th. So it's true what they say. Christmas can come early. And just in time for the holidays, we'll be doing a special episode with expert bartender and author Michael Lamont, author of The In Bible, a cocktail guide for beginning and home bartenders. We'll talk some serious stiff drink business, including how he incorporates the great local and seasonal produce of his home state of Virginia into his cocktail creations. But we'll also get to talking not only serious cocktail history, but also a little bit of science, perfectly suited for the holidays. Oh yes, there will be nog. Eggnog, that is. Straight from George Washington himself. That's next time on The Feast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.